0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you, and enjoy. A couple announcements real fast before I get into God's Word. Uh, Because of the funeral service that will be happening at 2.30, and there's a graveside immediately following that, we're going to move our How to Study the Bible class Back a half hour to five o'clock. It'll still be in the fellowship hall, uh, but five o'clock. So for you, uh, you who were here last week uh, and who are planning on being here today, um, please five o'clock in the fellowship hall, not four thirty, and pass the word on with that. And second. Uh, please be signing up for uh, church directory photos. Church directory photos, we'd love to have you sign up for that. Uh, And if you don't know how to do that, you can see Miss Joanna. Miss Joanna can fill you in on how to do that. Uh, And if not, Joanna, Christopher, Jackson, or I can help you do that also. All right, grab your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19. And remember, let's just remind ourselves what we're trying to do in God's Word. We are looking at... Uh, who is God called me to be as an individual, Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 to chapter 14, who is God? And chapters 15 forward is who are we? So the individual first, uh, who is God second, and who are we as the church in uh, third? Third, that's where we are. And so last week we looked at the idea that God has called us to be an organized people. And we looked at Exodus chapter 18, uh, Jethro and Moses, and Jethro gave Moses godly wisdom for how to organize themselves rightly so that they might accomplish the mission of God. And today, we look at what that mission is. What that mission is. Verse 1 says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So as we're looking at God's word, we're recognizing that now they're three months after leaving Egypt. Three months after leaving Egypt. So a lot of time has not passed from Exodus chapter 13 and 14 when they made their exodus to now. Not much time has passed. Three months they've been in the wilderness. And here we find ourselves in verse 2. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. So if you imagine in your mind uh, the Sinai Peninsula, what you uh, see them doing is they're traveling south uh, down the Sinai Peninsula, almost to the very point of that Sinai Peninsula is where you find the mountain of God. Okay, So they're traveling south, and they encamped before the mountain. They encamped before the mountain. We'll talk about that in a minute. That is very important for us. Verse 3 Verse 3 says, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain. Now, think back in the book of Exodus. Does the Lord calling out of an inanimate object sound familiar? In chapter 3, what does God speak to Moses out of? A bush, a burning bush. And now we see God calling out to him out of the mountain. Saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now, here's what we find. Okay, For 400 years, they were known as Jacob's people. Now, they are being organized and brought together. And this is the first time that God has said, you are an organized group of people. You are my people. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is a significant moment where God has brought them from slavery out into the wilderness, now to the mountain, and God is speaking to His people. God's speaking to His people in a very powerful way. And so He's calling out to them, and in verse 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So three things that God reminds the people of Israel of. Number one, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. Number two, how I bore you on eagles' wings. And number three, how I brought you to myself. So, he says, you're going to see, You you, just remember what I did to the Egyptians. Do you remember all the plagues? Do you remember the the Nile to blood, or the frogs, or, or the flies, or the gnats, or the death of the... The cows or the livestock? Do you remember all the boils? Do you remember the hail? Do you remember the darkness? Do you remember all the things that I did to the people of Israel? Remember that I did that for you. I did that to redeem you because it was with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand that I redeemed you. Don't forget the Passover lamb. He says, remember all that I did to Egypt and I did it for you. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And then he says, how I bore you on eagles' wings. Now that's an interesting verse. What does that mean for us? And what God is speaking to is from the the time that Israel left Egypt, how God has miraculously, wonderfully worked in their lives since then. He bore them on eagles' wings. So, number one, they left and they plundered Egypt. Number two pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, if you're going to be led some way, shape, or form, isn't that a pretty incredible way to be led? That by day, there's a pillar of cloud before you everywhere you go. When the pillar of cloud lifts up, you lift up your tent stakes and you follow it. Isn't that an incredible thought that that's how God led them? And he says, I bore you up on eagle's wings. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. He parted the sea. They went through the sea on dry land. They, God made bitter water sweet. God brought manna and quail in the wilderness. God brought water out of the rock. God fought for Israel against Amalek and defeated them. In other words, not one person in all of Israel had perished by the enemy, by hunger, or by sickness. That is is an incredible thought. You think of millions of people traveling through the desert and God has cared for them and borne them up and protected them and gone before them and He has done all of this. He has borne them on eagles' wings all my life you have been faithful. That's why we sang the song Just to remind ourselves that no matter what we are experiencing today, that all our lives, God has been faithful. All our lives, He's been so, so good to us. If God were to never do another good thing for us, it would take us a thousand lifetimes to catch up in our thanksgiving. He bore us up on eagles' wings. And the third thing He says is, Remember how I brought you to myself. Remember how I brought you to myself. Remember they they came and now they're encamped before the mountain. Now I want you to flip back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God is speaking to Moses. And he says, I'm going to send you to Egypt. In verse 12, God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So back in chapter three, God made a promise. And the promise is when you've, when you've, when you're free, when you're living in Egypt your identity as the people of God, when you are living as the redeemed people of the Lord, don't forget, this is the sign, you're going to go and worship me on the mountain. You will serve God on the mountain. And here, in chapter 19, finally they come to the very mountain of God, and it's just a reminder that not one single uh, promise of God has ever failed. All of God's promises... He is kept in your life and in mine. In fact, God can't fail on one of His promises. If God failed on a single one of His promises, no matter how big or how small, what would that make Him? Come on, church, wake up! What would that make Him? A liar. And in that moment, He would cease to be God. Not one good promise of God's has ever failed Israel, And it has never failed you, and it has never failed me, nor will it or could it. It is an impossibility for God to be a liar. He says, you're going to come before this mountain. And here in verse 3, they come to the mountain. And this is a picture. This is a picture of your salvation and mine. That God has redeemed us from the house of slavery... He has made us to be his people, and he has brought us to himself. He has saved us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by the blood of the lamb and by power from God on high. He has judged the one who had the power of slavery, and he has set us free by his grace, and now he has brought us to himself. Isn't that good news? It's good news. I want you to understand your first calling in life is not to be a part of a church. Your first calling in life is not to be a part of any other organization. Your first calling in life as a Christian is to come to Jesus. That your salvation, that God preaches the gospel to those who are far off and to those who are near, that he might bring us to God. That's the joy. That's the reward. That is the blessing of the gospel. It's not that you get forgiveness or heaven or eternal life or any of those things, but that sinners who have been uh, separated from God would get God again. What an incredible thought. What's heaven going to be like? I don't know, but you get to be with God forever. That's what I know. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know the one true God and him whom you've sent. That's eternal life. When do you start eternal life? The moment that you're redeemed. Have you trusted in the blood of the Lamb? Answer, yes. Then you, my friend, if you've answered yes to that question, you have been brought into the beginning of eternal life. For Miss Lou, just imagine this. Miss Lou was here with us last Sunday. She sat in the choir. She sang in the choir. She worshipped her Savior. She prayed with people at the altar after the service. She hugged people. I've heard story after story of how Miss Lou hugged people just more tightly than she's ever hugged them, and she had no idea. God knew. But Miss Lou didn't step from death to life that day she stepped from eternal life through the portway of breathing her last breath here to breathing her first breath in heaven she never truly died because jesus said if you believe in me you will not die you just move locations your address changes and that was what happened Miss Lou. She was experiencing God that morning right here at Seneca Baptist and she left that day and she experienced God like never before. It's a picture of our salvation. He brought them out of slavery in to himself. Israel had seen God's providence, His guidance, His power, His judgments, His mercies. And God had brought them to the mountain to see, not His acts, but to see His exalted majesty. That that now God is going to reveal Himself to them. It's just like the Mount of Transfiguration. That's exactly what we see. And so, in verse 5, he says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he says, if you, two things, obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant. I want you to understand that what's happening here is a conditional covenant. And here's what I mean by conditional. They are not God's people through obedience, but rather they experience the blessing of God through obedience. God had already set them free, hadn't He? He had already set them free. And so this idea of obeying and keeping the covenant was conditional blessings that were available to the people of God. It's not that if they disobeyed one day that God would reject them and say, get back to Egypt. Now He had redeemed them once and for all and forever. Do you know that you are the same way? That God has redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. And you were redeemed once and for all and forever. And so in our disobedience, it's not that He rejects us. Have you ever sinned since you become a Christian? Of course we have. So does that mean we've lost our salvation? God's rejected us and for, uh, rejected us and forsaken us? No, He's not rejected you. He's not forsaken you, but that disobedience separates me still from His blessing. I heard this illustration this week. Well, I'll give that in, yeah. I heard this in illustration uh, in, in a book by, by Ken Hempill this week. He said, Imagine that we're standing in a room with two doors to get out of. One door is called blessing and another door is called curse. Which one's going to have the longer line? Okay, so you've got to get out of this room. One door's blessing, one door's curse. Which one's going to have the longer line, right? Blessing. I don't see any of us walking up to the door called curse and saying, Yeah, that's the door I want to walk through out of here. But that is exactly. That is exactly what we're lining up at every time we sin against God, is we're lining up at the door of curse, which what I mean by that is it's not that we walk out of his salvation, but rather we walk out of his blessing. There is such blessing through obedience. He says, if you'll obey me, if you'll keep my covenant, then, then you'll experience the blessing of what it means to be the people of God, my treasured possession, you will be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation to me. He's saying not that you can lose your salvation, but you can walk away from the blessings of God. What are the blessings of obedience? Joy. Peace. These are blessings of obedience that we miss out on when we don't obey him. Are you with me? When we do not keep the if part of the clause. We miss out. We miss out. But this is a covenant of grace that God has made this covenant with you and with me. And did we deserve for him to make that covenant with you or me? Did we deserve for him to save us? Did, we des- did he look down from heaven and say, you know what? Ryan's just a good guy and I think he deserves me to send Jesus. Of course not. He looked down on the world and he said, those people are needy. Those people need a rescuer. They need a redeemer. And I will send him, not because they deserve him, but because they need him. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. But did they miss out on the blessings of God? Look through the book of Exodus. When they did not obey, did they miss out on the blessings of God? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. If we're saved by His grace, do our failures affect our salvation? No. Our relationship with God through Jesus is secured by His blood and His obedience, not ours. But, if we have little obedience, or patterns of disobedience, or unbroken habits, or continually walking in sin, John says in 1 John that the one who has been born of God does not make a practice of sinning. So I think we need to look at our hearts. We need to see, do I have habits or patterns? Am I continuing in sin? Or do I occasionally fall into sin? If I continue in sin, John, the Word of God would say, check your heart and see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. But... Just know that your salvation, if you are saved by God's grace, your salvation is secure and nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? But we can walk out on His blessing. We can miss out on the joy of obedience. On the peace of being in His will. On fellowship with God and others. We can separate ourselves from that through disobedience. He says, if you will obey me and keep my covenant. He says, then, then, verse six or verse five, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now, the King James Version says peculiar possession, peculiar possession. Okay, so let's think about possessions in the days of the Old Testament, possessions in the days of the Old Testament, really two in kind. Number one was land, land. So if you had possessions and it was land, that possession was static. It was immovable. You couldn't take it with you, right? There was another kind of possession. What did they leave Israel or Egypt with? What had they plundered the Egyptians and got from Egypt? What are they, what are they carrying with them? You have the wealth of Egypt. Man, their pockets are full of jewelry and gold and, and fine spices and all kinds of uh, other treasures. There, there were immovable treasures and there were movable treasures, Right? And so what we see in this passage, this idea of being a treasured possession, in the Old Testament, this word, I think, is used eight times, and it never speaks of land. It never speaks of this immovable possession. Rather, this treasured possession is the idea of a movable possession. It's what you can take along with you. And God says, "If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. You'll be my movable possession. Land was immovable, possessions are movable, and God uses them here and in every place to speak of something movable. And in three places He speaks of us. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter seven verse six. It's on the screen. "For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That word treasured possession is movable possession. Movable possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 135 verse 4. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel as his own possession. Same word. Same word, Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. They shall be mine, not an it, but a they. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the days when I make up my treasured possession. Who will the treasured possession be? Things or people? People. He says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So the idea here is that God says, I will make you a movable, a treasured possession. It's seen throughout all the Bible that God's people are a movable people. All right, remember back through the Old Testament with me. Abraham, Uh, Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, Leave the land of your fathers and go to the land that I'm going to show you. A movable possession. Joseph, Joseph, when he revealed himself to his brothers in Egypt, he said these words God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. In other words, Joseph was a movable possession. God had a purpose for Joseph, and God sent Joseph into Egypt for a purpose. God moved his people for a divine purpose. God moved all of Israel, 70 people, into Egypt to make them a great nation. God sent Israel into exile and then back in their own country, a movable possession. Jesus, when he was here on earth, moved around in his ministry, went from town to town Preaching the gospel and healing people. Movable possession. The apostles, literally their name means to be sent out. The sent out ones. They are a movable possession. Philip in Acts chapter 8 is sent by God down the, the road that goes south toward Gaza. It's a desert road. He says that in order to know that nobody should travel there. But God sent him there god sent him there why because there was an ethiopian eunuch traveling on that road who needed the gospel he was a movable possession he was available to his god and god would use him to move him to do that on purpose for a purpose are you with me church he says i'm going to make you a movable possession and then in acts chapter 8 starts a great bout of persecution All the early church began to be persecuted, and they scattered. It's called the diaspora. They dispersed all around the known world. Why would God do such a thing with His people? Because they are a movable possession. God has a mission, and He moves His people where He sees fit. Why would God do that? Because we are to be a kingdom of priests. Are you with me, church? I need you to understand something this morning, that you are a movable possession. You're movable. In other words, day after day, God's plan supersedes your plan, and you go where God sends you. And the question is, in those moments where I go to the grocery store, the hairdresser, the nail salon, I'm talking all about me, of course, the nail salon... Where are you going? You're going to work. You're going to Hardee's for breakfast. Where are you going? You're doing what you normally do. And do you see yourself as a movable possession in the hands of God on mission that day? Or are you just at the grocery store? Sometimes we are so narrow-minded that I'm literally just at the grocery store when I miss the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody right around me. I have a broken microwave in my house. I call the company, it's under warranty, I call the company, and they sent a representative to our house. Now, two options. We can look at that and go, well, I have this guy at my house, so inconveniencing. Or I can say, God sent this person to my house. And over the course of an hour of fiddling and fighting with a broken microwave, we had the opportunity to talk about who Jesus is. Why? Because I'm a movable possession. I'm a tool in His hands for His mission. Do you see yourself that way? Everywhere you go, God's sending you on purpose for His mission. You're a movable possession. And that brings us to, because you're a kingdom of priests. You're a kingdom of priests. Now, two parts of that, kingdom and priests. First, we are we're, we're made a kingdom. This is the first time in all the Bible that God speaks of His people as a kingdom. Now, we hear in Genesis chapter 14 about other kings, uh, but, but now this is really the first time we hear about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, first time. But let, church family, is this the last time that we hear in the Bible about the kingdom of God? No, it's a theme from all the way in Genesis all the way forward to the book of Revelation that we are a kingdom. That Jesus is our king and he's come to bring into this world his kingdom reality. And so there is this kingdom and we are a part of that kingdom. So what does it mean for us to be a part of that kingdom? Number one, we have a king and Yahweh is his name. We have a king. We're un- That means we're under his authority. Uh, go back a couple chapters to chapter 17 when when uh, Moses is up on top of the, ba- uh, the mountain with the staff of God in his hand and they name the mountain, the Lord is my banner, that means we are, wherever we go, we bear the banner, Jesus is king. Wherever we go, we bear that banner. We take the kingdom everywhere we go with us. We, he is our king and we bear his banner always. And the goal of a servant Uh, in the kingdom is to expand the kingdom of the king are you with me it's not about if i'm a servant in the kingdom that means it's not about me but i exist for his kingdom and not my kingdom isn't that so encouraging that you exist for a kingdom that's much bigger than this Every kingdom that we have ever known of here will one day fall into disrepute or die or be burned up. Every kingdom that we know, no matter how powerful it is right here on planet Earth, will one day pale in comparison and fall into submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Every dictator, no matter how powerful they are, will bow their knee to Jesus in submission. We get to serve as a part of that kingdom And that is an encouraging, incredible thought that the kingdom of God does not cease to exist from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, from all eternity past to all eternity future. It's all about God's kingdom. And for this little blip of time on the radar that is the creation and existence of the world until Jesus comes back and the world in which we live is destroyed, from the beginning of all that, uh, this little existence of so far about 6,000 years of our existence is just a blip on the radar screen of his kingdom. And we are ambassadors of a kingdom of heaven. We're a kingdom. And we serve in his kingdom. Yahweh is the king. And our goal is to advance his kingdom. And we are a kingdom of priests. Now think about that. In the Bible, has the priesthood been initiated yet? Has the priesthood been initiated yet? Nope. It comes later. It's interesting. Uh, Aaron is going to be known as the, the, the priest of Israel. And then... Later on, the Levitical priesthood is going to be set up. But as of now, there is no real priesthood of God. There's no priesthood of God. And yet, before the Levitical priest and before Aaron is really ordained as the priest of Israel, he calls us a kingdom of priests. That's interesting, isn't it? That should make us know something. That should make us know that Aaron is a priest and the Levites being priest, and anyone who calls himself priest from that time forward is not the end goal. There's something else. In a priest's job, what was a priest's, priest's job? It was to serve in God's presence. It was to serve in God's presence, to help others worship God. Now, in in the Old Testament, the priest would not forgive the sins of people, but rather the priest would, I don't know the word, I can't come up with it in my mind. The priests would take the forgiveness that God had granted and purvey it to the people of Israel. They had no power to grant forgiveness or to give forgiveness, but rather they took what belonged to the one true living God, the King of Kings, and they pervaded it to those who were seeking it. A priest's job was to serve in his presence, to help others worship him, and to mediate between God and man with proper sacrifices and so that this mankind might rightly worship him. They instructed people of God and His law, and this is exactly what you and I are to do. The New Testament makes it very clear that the the priesthood the Levitical priesthood of God has ceased. Why? Because there was one whose name is Jesus who became the high, great high priest, the last and final priest. And this last and final priest mediates on our behalf. Jesus became the priest, the last priest of God. And he went to God on our behalf to offer a sacrifice for us. And the sacrifice was not the blood of goats or bulls. In fact, the New Testament author of Hebrews says that it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to cleanse us from our sin. But he said Christ offered a better sacrifice. It was the once and for all sacrifice of Himself. See, the priesthood in the book of Exodus, they were encouraged to offer sacrifices repeatedly for the sinner. But Christ offered one sacrifice for sin and for sinners, and then He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The priest, every year there would be a reminder of our sin, but with Christ there was one sacrifice. And with that one singular sacrifice, He purified our consciences from their sin. From their uncleanness, he made purification for those who would by faith look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, and trust him that he is the last and final sacrifice made by the last and greatest high priest. The priesthood ceased. Why would we need to sacrifice goats and bulls if Jesus is really who he says he is? If Jesus is the Son of God and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, why would we need to offer another kind of sacrifice to take away my sins? Does Jesus' blood need to be spilled again and again and again? Of course not. That's why on the cross he spoke these words It is finished. Because it was. He spilled his blood. He shed His blood once and for all. And Hebrews 9 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. The priesthood's over, and now it's been given to us. Now it's been given to us. What do you mean by us, Ryan? I mean everybody. Are, Are you a believer in Christ Jesus? Have you trusted that Jesus is the Savior, the Lord of your life? Have you trusted that? If that's true, then you, my friend, have become a priest of God Most High. Now, as a priest, that means that there's no difference between the the people in the pew and the people in the pulpit. In other words, what I mean by that is, the people on the stage are no holier than the people in the pew. No more important than the people in the pew. That means that you can go to God just like I can go to God. That means you can hear from Him just like I can hear from Him. Isn't that good news? You get a divine, heavenly invitation to hear from the Lord day after day after day through His Word. The Bible says that we become ambassadors of Christ. God making His appeal through you. Remember, we don't give forgiveness to people on behalf of God, but rather we purvey what God has already done. God has forgiven you if you will trust Him. We're purveyors of that good grace, of that forgiveness. We're purveyors of it. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. That means every one of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we have become priests of God, a kingdom of priests. We talk about it in the Baptist denomination. We believe in the priesthood of every believer. And the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states that all believers in Christ share his priestly status. Therefore, there's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. But all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. All people. Isn't that exciting? You want to hear from God? Go to Him. You want to talk to God? Go to Him. You want to draw draw near to God through Jesus? Go to Him. You have incredible access to the holy place where sinful man can't go because of the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus, our great high priest, went on before you as a forerunner. We have access. I just come, I want to hear from the pastor every week. That's how I'm fed. Friend, if you're being fed by the pastor and the pastor only, you are emaciated and starving spiritually. Go every day. Feed yourself. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the heart of God. Feed yourself. Day in and day out on the word. How do we do this? How do we live out this priesthood thing? Well, that means we walk by the Spirit. You don't need a priest to depend on what the Bible says. We've been given the Spirit of God. It means we're gifted for service in His kingdom. Did you realize that? You are gifted for service in His kingdom. Pastor and pews alike. The shepherd cannot... You, you've heard the, the 1 Corinthians chapter um, 12 uh, in, analogy of the body where the eye says to the hand, I don't need you. Well, the pastor can't say to the people in the pews, I don't need you. People in the pews can't say to the pastor, I don't need you. We've been gifted and we do this together. Our priesthood allows us to join others in worship and service to King Jesus as we seek to help everybody become a more devoted disciple of Jesus. We purvey the good gospel message. We purvey the grace and forgiveness that God can offer through Jesus if they would simply trust His covenant. And we serve to bring God's redemptive kingdom reality into this broken world. Remember, you're a movable possession. And as a movable possession, you're a kingdom of priests. So everywhere you go, the question is, am I taking God's redemptive rule with me? So that people might bow their knee to him. Last thing, holy nation, and then I'll quit. Holy nation, that means Holy can mean two things. It can mean blameless or spotless. It can mean perfect. Or it can also mean distinct. And can we just be honest? If we as the people of God, we know that He does not mean perfect. But but what He's talking about is you are a distinct nation. You alone, Israel, will have me as your king. You alone will have me going with you. You alone will have me fighting for you. You alone will I speak to. You alone will I lead with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You alone will I provide manna from heaven. You alone will I bear up on eagle's wings. And you alone will I send my servant to redeem you. You alone. You are a wholly distinct nation We should be distinct in the world in which we live. Are you distinct from the rest of the world? I heard an illustration. I'll close with this. If you were to be... Lots of places around the world, being a Christian is illegal. And if you were to be taken to trial in one of those places for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence against you to convict you of that crime? In other words, are you distinct? Set apart? Different? Does your relationship to Yahweh, the King of Kings, make a marked difference in your life? It, it can. And it should. So remember, you're a movable treasure. You're a kingdom of priests. And you're a distinct nation. As we close our time, we're going to sing. Christopher's going to come. Miss Margaret's going to come. They're going to lead us in a song. He will hold me fast. And maybe you're out there today and you're just struggling. Maybe Maybe you feel this sense of depression or anxiety or... And if that's you, that's okay. But maybe that's what you feel today. And maybe today you just need to remember. You need to remember how God redeemed you and how He bore you on eagle's wings and He brought you to Himself. And today you just need to ponder on all God's goodness to you and you need to be reminded that God has not failed you nor will He. Maybe you're struggling with this idea of I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, today you can know. It's as simple as saying, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. I trust you that you did it all for me. Give your heart to Him. Let Him be your King. And last, see yourself as a movable possession, a kingdom of priests everywhere you go. May God stir up your heart for mission. If you want to join our church today, in this time of invitation, here's the opportunity for you. Let's stand together And let's sing together. You respond as the Lord leads you.